This morning I'm going to start John 17, verse number 3. Last week we looked at how do we describe the appearing of the Lord? How do we describe that day when Jesus comes in all His glory, in all His power? Today I want to build on that. How do we describe what eternity is going to be like? What's our future? What's in store for us? John chapter 17 and verse 3, Jesus said these words, And this is eternal life, that they might know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. According to Jesus, what is the definition of eternal life? Do we live long? Well, that's obviously implied. But eternal life ends up with the goal of knowing God. This is eternal life, to know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. When we use this word eternity, various thoughts go into people's heads and minds. It sounds like a long, long time, doesn't it? Never-ending time. And with our finite minds, sometimes people ask questions like this. What's it going to be like? Will it be just one endless Worship service. Will we be busy? Will we have responsibilities? And some people have even asked, and will we be bored? (laughs) Now, I highly doubt that, but people do ask the questions because they have pictures of floating on a cloud playing a harp all the time. And so after a while, that's got to get boring, you know. Will we be bored? I'm not even going to try to answer such questions. But I want you to note from the verse that we read, Jesus describes eternal life not in terms of existing forever, though we do, but it is eternal life is this, being continuously brought into an ever-increasing and fuller and more intimate knowledge of who God is. That's what eternal life is is growing continuously in a fuller and more intimate knowledge of who God is. The word eternal is used in the scriptures doesn't just mean uh, severed from time, though it does necessarily imply unendingness. But it's not just that it's on and on and on and on and on. The Bible uses the word eternal to describe special qualities, special qualities bound up with it. It's more like this, God, according to Isaiah 57, verse 15, inhabits eternity. He inhabits eternity, and what is the quality of life that God has? What does it mean to live in the eternal What kind of life do I need to inhabit eternity? What kind of life is suited? What qualities does it possess? What is the superior 
special and unique quality of this life, eternal life. Now, you and I know this. The present world has been judged. Is that not correct? Jesus judged it once and for all at Calvary. The present world has been judged and is in the process of passing away. According to 2 Thessalonians 1 and verse 9, the end of this present world is destruction. Therefore, the New Testament is going to encourage us over and over and over and over again. Don't invest your heart and your life in a losing venture. Don't invest your heart and your life in a losing venture. Rather, as Jesus said, lay up your treasures where neither the moth nor rust can corrupt nor where thieves can break in to steal. This world is on its way out. Don't put your heart into it. You have to live in it You have to be responsible in it. But the whole system is on its way out. Ends in destruction. You've got something much better. Amen. You have got something much better. In the New Testament, and for us who live in the West, this is somewhat hard to understand because we don't know what persecution is here. We don't know what difficult times is in the way of persecution and in the way of suffering. Sometimes in my travel, I've been humbled by some of the places I've been. And I remember being in a village called Kalinkovici. He said, where's that? Kalinkovici is a small village in Belarus. And I remember I was preaching there one time, and I can't tell you what I preached, I forgot totally, but I do remember on the platform behind me were two pastors that had their, had their jail time for preaching the gospel. Imprisoned for their faith, simply for preaching in Belarus. I don't know about you, but if you were in my shoes, that's a humbling experience. And we don't know what it's like to suffer, and we don't know what it's like to lose everything, and we don't know what it's like to have our houses confiscated, and we don't know what it's like to have loved ones martyred, and we don't know what it's like to to lose everything and be ostracized and thrown out of society and out of community. In the West, we don't know a lot of those things. But a lot of the world lives with those realities. And boy, we should ever be grateful. Ever be grateful for the freedom and not misuse or take for granted the freedom that we have here. It's not in my notes, by the way, but you know, but a lot of the Bible was written to people who suffered like this. A lot of your New Testament epistles are written to people who have, who who lived in that kind of suffering. And one of the exhortations that are in the New Testament to people who suffer this is this. This present world that persecutes you has been judged and it's on its way out. 
And even though you suffer the loss of so many things in this life, be encouraged because God's got something much, much better for you. Much better. Listen to 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 4 to people who suffered and lost things and were even in the process of losing their lives. Listen to what he says. You have an inheritance, incorruptible, undefiled, and fades not away, reserved in heaven for you. That's good news. That's good news. That means what is reserved in heaven is, will not rot. It will not decay. It is permanent. It is without blemish. It is without compromise. It will not wither. It will not become old. It's divinely protected. And it's far better than silver and gold because silver and gold is corruptible and it's on its way out. You've got something far better. Listen to the exhortation in Hebrews 10, verse 34, to people who to become a Christian, to, to make that decision to accept Christ, to believe on the Lord Jesus, to, to join the community of the redeemed. You have to understand in some places of the world to make that stand, it's costly. It's costly. And for those Hebrew believers, it was costly. And to stand for Jesus meant you're going to lose your home. To accept Christ means you're going to lose your job. To accept Christ means a whole lot of difficult things. And yet, their experience of salvation in the Hebrews was so powerful, so overwhelmingly victorious, though they were having struggles now, but their beginning was so powerful that the Bible says in Hebrews 10.34 that with joy they suffered the loss of all those things. And one of the reasons they could do it, because it says knowing in yourselves that you have in heaven a better and an enduring substance. They didn't mind the loss because they knew what they would gain. Hebrews 13.14, he also reminds them here in this present world, we don't have a continuing city, but there is one coming. We seek one to come. Listen to Paul in 2 Corinthians 4:18 where he says while we look not at the things which are seen but we look at the things that are not seen. The things that are seen are temporal but the things that are not seen are eternal. Let me paraphrase that. Paul is saying the things in this lower preliminary state that engage our interest on a daily basis. They are transitory and they're very corruptible. In the present dispensation, we don't live for such things. But we are looking and laying hold of those eternal, incorruptible realities. Now, when Paul makes that statement, you have to place it in the context 
of all of 2 Corinthians chapter 4, he doesn't just make that statement. He's not just saying that as a fact, as a, as a statement of theology or something of that nature. He's actually very emotionally involved when he makes that statement. If you read all of 2 Corinthians chapter 4, he has this great list of things that he is constantly suffering, persecuted, but not, you know, cast down, but not forsaken, persecuted, but, you know, all that, that he just, everything he goes through, and the loss that he suffers, and the pressures that he suffers, and he says, you know, I'm, for preaching the gospel, I'm constantly under attack, and constantly being opposed, and, 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 and the world persecutes us, but there's something that drives me in the midst of all that difficulty and persecution. I'm not looking at the things I'm losing, because I'm going to lose them anyway. I'm not looking at the things I lose because, folks, you're going to lose them anyway. They're perishable. I tell you what I'm looking at. I'm looking at eternal realities. I understand that Paul is saying that the future in the gift of the Holy Spirit has already broken into my heart and I've already gotten in my heart that the eternal realities are already alive on the inside of me and that just makes me hungry for the fullness of it yet to come. And when I see the fullness and the weightiness of what's to come, the, the incorruptibleness, the, the solid weight of it, it makes me look at my shipwrecks and the loss of my job and the loss of my home and, and the loss of friends and the loss of money and the loss of all that. In comparison to what I'm gaining, all that's quite trivial. What kind of a vision has Paul got? of the eternal that could say the loss of my job the loss of my home the being thrown out of society thrown to the deep persecuted plots upon my life what vision of glory has he got that would call all that trivial stuff would you say that was trivial Would you consider beatings and shipwrecks and plots on your life and the loss of everything as something trivial? Folks, you and I have an inheritance that is beyond comprehension. That's my destiny. That is your destiny. And Paul the Apostle lived by faith. He says, right now we walk through this land by faith because we're laying hold of things future. Real and powerful. So if that is the case, no wonder Paul would make admonitions over and over in his epistles. Don't set your affection on the things of this world. But instead, set your affection on the things that are above, where Christ is. Set your affection on things above and not on things of this world. Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. We've already meditated last week about the day that Christ is coming. Forgive me for a little repetition, but I really don't like the way the second coming is preached a lot of the times. Instead of it, the blessed, blessed hope, we've made it the great fear. People are scared. They really want the Lord to come, but not really in their lifetime, so they don't have to go through all that trouble. Folks, 
I'm looking forward to the Lord's coming. It's the day He claims, Jesus claims His inheritance. It's the day, not when I escape my enemies, it's the day when I am vindicated before my enemies. Listen to last week's message. (laughs) It's the day for all that we have suffered, we are compensated. It's the day when Christ is revealed in His glory. And it's the day the body of Christ is also revealed in His glory. This is nothing to be afraid of. This is, this is it. This is it. Let our hearts be focused on such realities. There's a song that goes, What a day that will be. When my Jesus, I shall see. When I look upon His face, the one who saved me by His grace, when He takes me by the hand and leads me through the promised land, what a day. What a day that will be. I'm not afraid of the day. I'm looking forward to it. At the moment, though, we're not there. 1 Corinthians 13, 9, Paul would say, right now, we only know in part We prophesy in part. We see through a glass dimly. Now, the fact is, God inhabits eternity. And since God is eternal, in the present condition in which you and I, as believers, live right now, it's not possible to have a complete and a thorough, absolute, adequate reception of Him. Jesus said the goal of eternal life is to know Him. The goal of eternal life is to know God. So here's the question. How can you and I, with our finite minds, with our limited strength, who can't see everything, how would you and I be brought to the place that we can fully and intimately know this God who inhabits eternity? Well, God has an answer for that. He has to radically change us. He is going to fit us for eternity. And that's why when Jesus comes, He is going to impart His unique eternal existence to us and allow us to see Him, listen to this, face to face. Are you ready for that one? To see Him face to face. In order for that to happen, a radical change has got to happen. And that's why at the appearing of Jesus, there's this thing called the resurrection of the body. And we will be changed and reconstituted because we will no longer need to be relating to this present world that is judged and passing away Instead, we're going to be so changed and so reconstituted so that we can relate to the fullness of the eternal realities. And God is going to impart His eternalness even into our bodies. Why? Even so, come, please, Lord. He's going to put that. And so that He allows us, it equips us to know God face to face. So that we can fully know Him and fully enjoy Him. And God in turn delights in His creation. On the one hand, 1 Timothy 6.16 says, God is the only 
immortal being, but on the other hand, for those who seek Him, for those who look forward to Him, when He appears, there is an ultimate goal of the prize of incorruption given so that we can brought into the same realm as God Himself so we don't just know in part, but we can know Him face to face. That's our future. That's where we're headed. That's where we are, are going. Now, in order to try to describe eternity, how do you take everything the New Testament has to say, and how can you boil it down to a few broad points that covers everything? I think to understand the eternity to which we are going, the Bible uses three terms. I've already described that it's incorruptible, imperishable. But besides that, there are three terms. I'm going to, term number one is the spirit. Term number two, it's about life. I don't know if I told you term number three ever, but the end of the story. Because glory. glory. The spirit, life, and Glory. Those three categories, I think, will sum up the reality of eternity. And actually, it's the Spirit that gives life, and it's the Spirit that reveals glory, so maybe it could all come down to the Spirit. But those three realities, let's see that the Scripture makes it abundantly clear that in eternity, what unifies the whole creation... What conforms and transforms the heavens and the earth to correlate with the glory of eternity is nothing but the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit can take elements that are out of harmony, bring them into harmony with the things of God. Both in eternity, and if you didn't know, and even now. He can bring us into harmony with God. It is the Spirit that transforms It is the spirit that harmonizes. It's the spirit that unites. It's the spirit that holds together all the components into a unified creation that centers on fellowship with God. That is eternity. For instance, in Hebrews chapter 6, verses 4 and 5, it says that you and I have tasted of the heavenly gift. You and I already in this present life have been made partakers of the Holy Ghost. You and I have tasted the good word of God and listen to this. And in the gift of the Holy Spirit, you've already tasted the powers of the world to come. The world to come is sustained and energized and held together by the power of the Holy Spirit. And as believers, you and I who have already received the Holy Spirit have already got a foretaste of that power. But the truth is, it's the power of the Holy Spirit that keeps all of eternity the way it is. 1 Corinthians 15.44, about this physical body. When it dies, when it's sown into the ground and put into a grave... Paul said it's sown as a natural body. But at the resurrection, when it comes out of the grave, it's not natural anymore. Come on. 
It's not now. It is changed to suit knowing God in eternity. It is raised, it says, a spiritual body. Right now it's a natural body, but you need to see me on that day. You won't recognize me. I won't recognize you either. Yes, you will. We'll get into that some other time. But it's raised a spiritual body. There's a promise in Romans 8 verse 11. He that raised up Jesus from the dead shall also quicken your mortal bodies by His Spirit that dwells in you. I like what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 3.18. Right now, all of us, we are changed into the same image from glory to glory, ever increasing glory, as by the Spirit of the Lord. It's the Holy Spirit that perfects it all in that day. We've already seen that my, our present experience of the Holy Spirit is a foretaste. We've already talked about that. We've talked about how we're sealed by the Spirit. We've talked about how the Holy Spirit is the earnest of our inheritance. We've talked about how the Holy Spirit is the first fruits, while the resurrection of the body is the harvest. We've already talked about the Spirit as the Spirit of adoption. Every one of those metaphors that Paul uses, it means that the future reality of what happens by the Spirit on Resurrection Day, the day Christ comes, the future reality of the Spirit holding all of the heavens and the earth and all the perfect harmony with the glory of Christ, that, 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 that power of the Spirit is for all eternity has already come back to us in time back here. And when we receive the Lord, when we receive that gift of the Holy Spirit, when the power of God surges through our being, We've already tasted, in part, the power of that world to come. And sealed means taking me to the end. Earnest means taking me to the end. First fruit means taking to the end. The spirit of adoption, all those things mean taking to the end. No wonder I believe in the Holy Spirit so much. No wonder I believe you've got to be filled with the Spirit and walk in the Spirit and live in the Spirit and pray in the Spirit and worship in the Spirit. Thank God for the Holy Ghost. Unashamedly, I'm Pentecostal. Unashamedly, thank God for the gifts of the Spirit. Thank God for them. Because the Holy Spirit in me has tasted the powers of the world to come. Now I know in part, but that Spirit is going to be keep moving me towards my destiny, towards my destiny, towards my destiny, until He comes. And I don't just know in part, I have been radically changed at His appearing to suit eternity so I can see Him and enjoy fellowship Him face to face. Thank God for the Holy Ghost. Are you filled with the Holy Spirit? Living in the Spirit. And walking in the Spirit. I'm biased on that topic, I guess. In Isaiah 31, verse 3, we want to hear what the Spirit's all about. When Israel was tempted to trust in armies of men instead of God... This statement is being made. Isaiah 31.3, the I statement is, Now the Egyptians are men, and not God. Their horses are flesh, and not spirit. So why would you trust in men, and why would you trust in horses, when you can trust in God? 
and when you can trust in the Spirit. And that phrase from Isaiah, talking the difference between flesh and spirit, which you find often in the New Testament, the whole idea is this. What distinguishes from the spirit, the flesh from the spirit, is this. The flesh has no power. Simple enough. The power is in the spirit. The flesh has no power. Jesus said the flesh profits nothing. It's the spirit that quickens and gives life. If you're born of the flesh, it gets you nowhere. You've got to be born of the spirit. You've got to be born from above. Let me repeat. The purpose of the spirit is to impart power. We have inherited a tradition where we have the Holy Father, the Holy Son, and the Holy Book. The book has replaced the Holy Spirit. And when we talk about the Holy Spirit, he's just a silent influence like leaven in the bread. He's there, but he's really not noticeable. But secretly, he's doing his work there. And it just all comes out. This is that, excuse me. Announcement. The Holy Spirit is the demonstration of power. I better try that one again. The Holy Spirit is not some silent force, though He can work silently. The Holy Spirit is a demonstration of power. And that's what eternity is like. It's power in the gift of the Holy Spirit, transforming, harmonizing everything, delivering this world from its corruption, the power of God, and we're sealed with that power. Hallelujah. This is amazing stuff. The presence of the Spirit in the New Testament is all about power. Miraculous expressions in the life of the church is the power of the future breaking into our present experience. Giving us a foretaste. You want to know what the resurrection of the body is like? Have you ever seen God heal a sick person? It's just a touch, an example of the power of God. But the Spirit also, that holds the whole future together, transforms the human heart as well. Not only can the Spirit bring someone back from the dead if he wanted to, or, or cleanse a leper, or open the blind eye, or a deaf ear, or all these miracles, but the Spirit is equally powerfully, powerfully equal, whatever way you want to say it, but he can transform your heart. And He can transform your life. And He can transform your soul. I want people to get saved knowing the power of God. I want them to encounter God. To encounter the power of God. Because what the Holy Spirit will do is He will deliver us from our old impulses. And He will grant new desires in us. And then He actually comes in to empower us to follow those new desires. That's as miraculous as healing a broken body. It's powerful. It's powerful. The Holy Spirit can transform your character. The fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, and peace, and long-suffering, and gentleness, and goodness, and faith, and meekness, and temperance. God can transform all of that character. And He does transform our character to make us the person we need to be at His appearing. I want to have the right character when Jesus shows up, don't you?
I want the right character. Well, the Holy Spirit is the reality of the future. Come back to us in time. The second one is life. How do you describe eternity? It's living like you've never lived. It's life. How many people don't live, they just exist? So I would say lights on, but nobody's home. You just exist, you don't live. What a powerful thought this is. Just like the New Testament teaches that the Father and the Son have been, are united together. How can I explain this? Words are inadequate. But you and I have been joined to the Son, like the Son is joined to the Father. Anybody here get that? Joined to the Son. And my destiny is wrapped up in the Son. I'm His body. When He gets His inheritance, so do I. When He's revealed in glory, so am I. I have been united to the Son. 1 John 5.12 puts it this way. And he who has the Son has life. Hallelujah. He who has the Son has life. At the resurrection to come, as I said, our bodies are changed from mortal to immortal. What immortal means, you're not subject to death. But when the New Testament wants to describe the blessedness of eternity, it uses a term more powerful than immortal. It's not that you are just not subject to death. It is that you have been made alive. Amen. You have been made alive. It's not just I'll never die. It's not that I'm simply going to exist. It means I have been made alive with the life of God Himself and there's a vibrancy in my heart. There's a vibrancy in my soul. It's victory. And this is a New Testament, a powerful motivation for praise and for rejoicing. In Christ you have been made alive. You don't exist. You live. Hallelujah. Eternal life. It means, life means, I have been brought into this face-to-face knowledge of the immortal one. And he has so changed me. At the appearing of Christ, he has so changed me that I no longer have to say, I only know in part. But He has changed me so that I can know Him face to face. Folks, that's living. Amen? That is living. That is life. It's eternal life. It's absolute. It's not just a speculation, folks, but you and I 
through the gift of the Holy Spirit, have already tasted that reality. When Paul the Apostle wants to describe this life, there's two themes he seems to develop. One is an obvious one, is that life is the opposite of death. Way back in the garden, Genesis 2.17, you eat this tree, you will surely die. Death, because of sin, has been present in human history from the beginning. But God has a greater intention for you. God's goal was this. When we do God's eternal purpose, we'll look at this in more detail. But God intended man, who starts with natural life, in in a probationary state, God intended man to receive his own uncreated life and then grow in the knowledge of God and develop in that spiritual life and then through continued obedience. See, if sin had never happened, this was still the program. That man was to receive that uncreated life of God, grow in it and develop it, and through continued obedience, inherit the end of the story, which is glory. If sin had never happened, God's goal was for man to receive the prize of glory. That is God's goal. Now, of course, sin did happen, and God had to redeem us, but that doesn't change the finish line of where we're going. God's goal is incorruption and immortality for his people, transforming them to his nature to enjoy him. That is the goal. God's desire was for man to keep going up and up and up to the glory. But sin entered the world and instead man chose disobedience that led to death. And the Bible says and death was passed on to all men. Now there are forces, instead of going up and up, there are forces bound up in the power of sin, like gravity, that wants to keep pulling man backwards and down and down and down. But Christ, as the last Adam, the Bible teaches us, is the bestower of life. Come on. You got life. How can I describe this life to you? This concept of God offering life to people is all through the scriptures, right? In the Garden of Eden, the tree of life, or the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, take your choice. How many times do you read through the scriptures where God will say something like this? See, I have set before you this day life and good, or death and evil. How many times do you read those kind of statements in scripture? I like this one because we sing it. Psalm 46, verses 4 and 5. There is a river that makes glad, whose streams thereof make glad the city of our God. I'll say it again. There is a river whose streams thereof make glad the city 
of our God. And when the psalmist in Psalm 46 wrote those words, he was thinking back to the Garden of Eden in Genesis chapter 2, verses 9 and 10, where in the midst of the garden there was this tree of life. And out of that garden there were four rivers that went out. And since those rivers were rooted at the tree of life, those rivers took life everywhere that it went. In Ezekiel chapter 47, when he talks about the temple, and there's a river that flows out of this temple, he's borrowing the picture from Genesis chapter 2 and everything that river touches brings healing and life and in the book of Revelation in the midst of the city there the temple there is the tree of life there's a whole river of life there are trees on every side every month they bring forth the fruit and everything it touches is life and healing that's sure better than going down folks that's my future that's my eternity. The Bible speaks about the bread of life. The light of life. The word of life. A tree of life. A crown of life. A book of life. A spirit of life. The river of the water of life. That's eternity. Life. What a joy to be liberated from the stranglehold and the fear of death. You don't have to be bound in your heart and your mind over the morbid topic of death. Because even death is on its way out. I have received the spirit of life. The other aspect about life that Paul would want to teach, not only is it the opposite of death, but life is power. You can't get away from it in the New Testament. To have life, the life of God, is to have power. Eternal life exerts itself. Eternal life has the power to overcome corruption. Listen to Galatians 6.8. He that sows to his flesh shall of the flesh reap corruption, but he that sows to the Spirit shall of the Spirit reap life everlasting. This life has the power to overcome corruption. That's going to happen to you physically at the resurrection. But it also happens in your heart right here and right now. The downward forces of sin that pull people back and pull them down. There's another power that keeps going up and up and up. Folks, you can't keep resurrection down. You can't keep resurrection down. Corruption is life in reverse. Corruption is power to decay, to break down, to disintegrate with increasing degrees of intensification. But by contrast, the Spirit makes us alive. Amen. This is eternity. The Spirit makes us come alive. Whenever the Spirit's energy is introduced, God works to produce a perfect end result. There is nothing that can stand in the way of the sweeping power of God. Let us pray for revival. Let us pray 
for a move of God. Let us pray for the Spirit of God to descend in power because when the Spirit comes, it's life, it's life, it's life. It can break through any barrier. It can just change any situation. Nothing can stand before the sweeping power of the river of God, which is life, life, life. That's what eternity is all about. I tell you, when Jesus comes, the Bible says mortality is swallowed up in life. The gospel has brought immortality to light and abolished death. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Life is characteristic of eternity. The third term, as I close now, this is a quick one. Maybe you laugh at me because I keep saying it, but the end of the story is glory. Glory is that third term that's going to describe the reality of eternity. Romans 2, 7 People seek after immortality. To seek after immortality is to seek glory. As I said earlier, if sin even had never occurred, and I like challenging people with this, how would your Bible read if Adam never sinned? Where was it going? The end of the story, God's intention was for man to go from obedience to obedience to obedience until the revelation of glory. You all know Romans 3.23, for all have sinned, and what did you fall short of? So what were you missing out of? And if you didn't sin, where were you headed to? Glory is the end of the story. Romans chapter 5.2, we who are saved stand and rejoice in hope of the, the glory of God. Romans 8.30, whom he called, he justified, whom he justified, he also glorified. Glory is at the end of the story. When this body of mine and yours is raised at the resurrection, the Bible says when it goes into the grave, it goes down in dishonor. But that's not how it comes up. It comes up raised in glory. When Christ appears, we saw this last week, we appear with him in glory. Christ in us, Colossians 1.27, is the hope of glory. We've already seen 2 Corinthians 4.17. The glory that we're looking at is so heavy, so weighty, that it makes the loss of your life, the loss of your house, the loss of your job, the loss of your possessions, it makes all that seem trivial compared to the glory that shall be revealed in us. What an inheritance that we have tell you when Jesus comes back all creation is set free did you know the earth is longing for the revelation of glory it wants to be set free from the corruption as well it's longing to be glorified at the appearing of Jesus what is the goal of ministry my last thought what's my goal what's the goal of a minister for what do I prepare people when I have to give an account of myself to the Lord, what question is he going to ask me? Sobering thought, isn't it? What's required of me? 
According to Colossians 1, verses 27, 28, and 29, where it says, Christ in you, the hope of glory. My job description is to prepare you for presentation at his appearing. What is the work of an evangelist? Is to prepare people for the appearing of the Lord. What's the job of a teacher? Is to prepare people for the appearing of the Lord. Ultimately, what does Paul say the job description of an apostle is? Is to prepare people for the coming of the Lord. What's the goal of the prophet? Is to prepare people for the coming of the Lord. And what is the pastoral heart's concern? It is to prepare you for presentation on that day. It's more than just going to heaven after you die. What it is, it's the appearing of the Lord, and it is our responsibility to prepare you for that day. That is the job description. To get that done requires a lot of work. It's more than evangelism. It requires teaching. It requires prophetic ministry. It requires all sorts of things. It's to prepare people for the appearing of the Lord. But Paul would say, in order to accomplish that goal, I have a prayer. And you can find that prayer in Colossians 1, 27, 28, 29, that I can make all men see the glory. That I can make all men see the riches of His glory. My goal is to make you see the end of the story so that you are hungry and hungry and hungry for and repair yourself for that day. That's my job description, Paul says. And listen to how he prays, and this is my last scripture. In Ephesians 1, verses 11 to 18, he talks about you and I have obtained an inheritance. In the present, you and I have been sealed by the Spirit, which is the earnest of that inheritance. And he says, knowing this it was on our future, then he says, listen to his prayer. I pray that the eyes of your understanding would be enlightened. That you may know, grasp, that it might be revealed to you what your future is. That you might know what the hope of His calling is. And what is the riches of the glory of His inheritance in the saints. Now here's a mind-blowing thought. I'm going to receive an inheritance. But on that day, when you and I are presented in Christ, when you and I are revealed in glory in Christ, it's God who says, and I've received an inheritance. You are my inheritance. How's that for some self-worth? You are the inheritance that God wants to gain. We gain His inheritance, and He gains us as His inheritance. May our eyes be opened to see our future calling. May our eyes be opened to see the vastness of what worth and what meaning we have to God. May our eyes be opened to see the riches of His glory in that day. Folks, the end of the story is indeed 
its glory. Full renovation. Full transformation by the Spirit. Enabling us to know God face to face. Full of life. Full of glory. That, my friend, is your future.